0: Welcome to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. Our guest today is Rachel Sklar. Rachel's name is a familiar one to media watchers in Manhattan and elsewhere. She has written for Media Bistro, was a founding editor of both Mediaite and the Huffington Post, and now runs The List, a visibility platform for professional women. I'm thrilled to welcome my friend Rachel to the podcast today. Hello, Rachel.
1: Hi, Don, thanks for having me.
0: It's our pleasure. It's really great to have you, and I was so grateful back in April when you curated the Sunday Long Read newsletter. You did a great job, and now you're getting in the newsletter game yourself. You are creating a newsletter called The Luckiest. What is the luckiest?
1: I I am, yes, I aspire (laughs) to the lofty heights of the Sunday Long Read. Um, the, The luckiest, my shorthand has been, it's a mom newsletter. I've, I'm a single mom. I've, uh, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. And basically since she was born, I've been wanting to do a newsletter. I'm a big, huge newsletter nerd. And... Uh, and, and why is but,
0: that? But what do you like about newsletters?
1: I, I love newsletters because they're very voicey, because they come right to your inbox. I, I've, always, I've always been a fan of the, the meaty, long newsletter format. That's one of the reasons I love the Sunday long read. Um, I can really sink my my teeth into it. And I I am old fashioned as a, I guess as a media person in that I, I still believe that words are, you know, the ultimate way to connect and that people do actually want to receive good, smart, written content in their inbox, where they live. So I've been wanting to do this, and you know, but then I'm also a single mom, so you know, you want to do a lot of things. But I, I finally planted my flag. Uh, at least I've got the URL and you know, my Insta, and I will be, I'll be launching really soon. It's, it's called the luckiest because I, I say that to my daughter all the time. I say we're the luckiest all the time. And one day I heard myself, and I was like, that's a great title. It is a great um, title.
0: I love that title. Fantastic. And it's,
1: and it's true. And I think. I think, too, as a single mom, I, I feel a responsibility to sort of buck the branding of single motherhood as something that is, you know, an affliction. I, like, I love being a single mom. I think it's fantastic. I think it's, it's, you know, I think my daughter has a great life and she has a great village and she has a great relationship with her dad and, you know, we're a modern family. So I, and, and I also really like the notion of, when when you know pe- people are very are very happy to it ad- to talk about how lucky they are, uh, people are, are less happy to admit how privileged they are.
0: But very true. L- yes. Luck
1: and privilege are are just a real blurry line between the two. Yes, for um, sure. So I also think it will be a, a useful venue for those kinds of conversations, which are particularly timely right now. Anyhow, this is all stuff I have not yet done. It's in my head. Um, stay tuned for when I do it but
0: well I love it and uh readers can go to theluckiest.com and sign up and how often is the newsletter going to come out Rachel
1: I mean as often as my daughter will let me get to the computer (laughs) I guess we'll see I'm, I'm hoping for uh at least twice a week
0: Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's that's that is uh, extremely ambitious. Uh, Well, it's not going
1: to be it's not going to be quite as, you know, meaty as the Sunday long reads. But um, dare to dream, dare to dream. But we'll get there.
0: Well, good luck with it. One of the things I love about you the most, there's many things I love about you. But one of the things I love the most is that you are a master of reinvention. Uh, Your career has covered a ton of ground. You went from being a lawyer to being a writer to being an activist. Tell us a little bit about your background and how each change in your career came about.
1: It's true. I came to New York as a lawyer. I practiced uh, for a big white, white shoe law firm called White & Case. Um, they sent me to their Stockholm office. Uh, it, was, it was a great education and I, I loved law school, but I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. So at my core, at my core I mean, that's what I do. I'm a writer now. I, I write in many different ways. But um, it always comes back around to the written word, which is, it's my thing. Um, so, so yeah, so I was, I was, a, I was a writer, but uh, I, I mean, you know, lots of people like they hang up their shingle and they say, I'm a writer. Um, and someone has to actually pay you to write and want, and people have to want to read your writing. Um, <laughs> so I flailed around a little bit as a, as a freelancer, tried to figure out exactly what I was doing and, and and where I should land Uh, and I got really lucky, I'm going to use that word a lot, Um, uh, just uh, serendipitously was referred to Elizabeth Spires for Fishbowl New York which was the media blog at Media Bistro and this is in mid 2005 and so I was suddenly a media blogger and when you're writing about the media guess what, suddenly the media pays attention to you. So all these people who would never have responded to my pitch emails were suddenly reading me and meeting me at parties and um, people I was I was starting to professionally befriend. So that was a real door opener for me. And then just under a year later, I met Arianna Huffington at a party Nick Denton threw for her. And I was really excited to meet her and I had a Greek friend and I had her teach me how to say, like yeah, nice to meet you in Greek, and I sort of like had my little moment with Ariana, and I struck up a, uh, a relationship with her, and which eventually led to her recruiting me to the Huffington Post. And so again, just great luck, and a, a, really just a great time to have been starting out. And. I mean, I wasn't I mean, I was when I was starting out in media, I was in my early 30s. So it's it's sort of the perspective of being a person who's starting out is, you know, I was it was where many other people were starting out in their 20s after, you know, graduating college. For me, I had to go through law school, be a lawyer and then figure out, OK, maybe I'm going to do something else.
0: So yeah, So you were you were really training to become a writer while you were in law school. Right. I mean, this is you you were you were a practicing writer. While in law school, I didn't and think of
1: myself as that, but I. Yeah, but,
0: but you were practically right, for Rachel. Sure. I mean, yeah, I wrote and a so, book. It's yeah, just, I mean, it, you wrote a book, and you were just, writing. You had you were finding all these outlets to write, which clearly sort of indicates a frustration with the law, or certainly not. Uh, you you were not envisioning yourself necessarily as being a lawyer. You were envisioning yourself as being a writer. This was sort of a detour you took, but as you say, the you know a lot of the skills you learned. Uh, certainly served you well as a writer. Um, I want to talk about your time at Fishbowl, because that's the first time I recognized your work and became a fan of yours very quickly. Of course, like anybody in the media, you were writing about me, so uh, or, or about my business, so I got very interested. Go. Yeah. Or your friends, and, right? Or my friends, and um, you know, I was really into Media Bistro, and I remember reading your work in that period. I had just come back in 2005 from London for the New York Times, so I was back in New York after being abroad for a few years and reading your work and I'm really curious of the media landscape then and and how you were able to so quickly kind of figure it out how were you able to make sources how were you just as a practicing writer in a space that you had never been in before sort of gamed it out and wrote with such authority in such a short amount of time
1: I did not know what I was doing when I started is the short answer People whose names I legitimately did not know. When, I mean, uh, so many names I didn't know, but I I still remember. Like I didn't know who Brian Williams was. I didn't know Howard, who Howard Kurtz was. I didn't know who Jack Schaefer was. Like I, these, I, this what it wasn't my world. I was thrown into it, and I just I just like worked like a mad woman. I. I, it, was, it was a contract position. It was not a living wage at that time, but I just treated it like my full-time job. I recognized it as the amazing opportunity it was, and I just, like, just worked really hard. I also had some smart, helpful people at that time. You know what's so funny? At, Taffy Ackner at Media Bistro... One of the first people I knew in the media space. She, Media Bistro, I basically signed up for Media Bistro class, uh, Boot Camp for Journalists, in 2002 when I, I was looking to quit law and I just wanted something to show that I was serious so that I, I could say, Look, I've been trained as a journalist. I took Media Bistro's level one Boot Camp for Journalists class. And so that's how I met Taffy Ackner at Media <laughs> Bistro, who was amazingly helpful and who knew that, you know, like, like hiding behind the brisk, cheerful, amazing administrator of Media Bistro was this unbelievable writer. I have known Taffy for years and it was like such a gift when sh- she started writing these amazing pieces and she's so awesome. And I also met Glennis McNichol at Media Bistro. I she was in my boot camp for journalist class in um, January 2002. Not that anyone can. Oh, I didn't counting. know that. Yeah, she wow. <laughs> Yeah, Glennis my my great friend and current business partner, uh, better known now as the author of No One Tells You This, a memoir.
0: Yes, fantastic that book.
1: everyone should go buy.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: But uh, you were asking me about who helped me. Um, and I...
0: Yeah, who, and who and and who else? Who else were sort of instrumental in getting you, you know, the help you needed in 2005 when you were sort of figuring out the media landscape?
1: I had just the biggest ringer that's the right use of ringer, right? Like a person who's awesome and amazing? Yes. <laughs> that is how we use that word? Okay, um, good. Uh, my ringer was Michael Hastings, actually. Uh, someone who um, obviously has really missed. I mean, I think about him often yes. now on, on, in this environment, in this news environment. Um, but uh, Michael and I were neighbors and friends. And at the time that I started Media Bistro, we're dating. And he was just like a, a unbelievably helpful. It's just, uh, he was omnivorous in his reading. He just, he knew everything, everyone. He was so smart. And when I didn't, you know, he would give me back, backstory on just people's names or like who I should read. And he was just really just an amazing mentor. And when I think back, and then he actually started, uh, he, he enjoyed, Blogging vicariously through me so much that he threw his hat in to be a guest editor at Gawker, and so for a, a f- like a few very caffeine-fueled weeks in there, we would just like s- like sit on the floor, like in, you know, in, in each other's apartments, um, just like like blogging away, and and then like high-fiving after posts and that sort of thing. I don't know. It was just it was a very heady time. It was it was it was just a it was exciting it was certainly exciting for me but it was an exciting time because media was really being shaken up by the sort of this new guard this new digital guard and there was uh, you know the pecking order had been disrupted and it was also i mean just uh, in 2005 specifically there was also a very exciting time like that was when the media started to Sort of not. I won't say turn against the Bush White House because that's not the right way. But they sort of fell fall out of line in the sense that the media had fallen very much into line after 9/11, and yes, for sure. There that's was right. the, yeah. what I recall, and you know, you can. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think. But what what really seemed to be sort of the catalyst for the media pushing back against the Bush White House was the Newsweek Quran incident, where news do you remember this yes the, uh, um uh, a newsweek article reported on an incident in now i'm i'm in iraq i believe where there was a that supposedly a, it was it was a report of uh, that that was not not Sort of rigorously sourced sourced or implied to have not been rigorously sourced about um desecration of a quran in uh of, of a prisoner in u.s custody in iraq and um, i hope i am getting these details right no that's that, that's
0: that's that's my memory of it right that's and right. then
1: um so the the pushback it was like it was quote unquote debunked and there was you know outraged outraged and and self-righteous pushback from the bush administration and then newsweek pushed back and it turned out that the item yeah, that they did get a second source, and this part I'm not, I, I am so sorry for not having reviewed my notes before I came here, but I, I haven't thought about this in a little years. Um, but uh, after the Newsweek Quran incident, it really—that's what felt like the pushback to the Bush White House started. It just—it felt like—it just felt like a new time on for both like old guard and new guard, and it was just—it was really exciting.
0: There was. There was also extraordinary rendition. It was uh, oh the Bush God. administration, remember, with cou-
1: Yes, oh with God. counterterrorism,
0: where we're picking up uh, people and sending them to, you know, dark prisons um, around the world where they were tortured. There was Abu Ghraib. There was all sorts of stories in that time frame in the in the second uh, George W. Bush term where, yes, the media got much more aggressive. Saddam
1: being found and then executed. I mean, That's right. these were... These were uh, just gripping stories. I mean, the, the, this, this is where the news cycle basically like grabbed a hold of my life and basically has really not let go. I, really, the only time it let go was maybe like those six days when I was in the hospital after I had Ruby. <laughs>
0: but, wow! Yeah, and, and I mean that you're right. The news cycle did feel as if it was accelerating. Of course, this is before the advent of social media. Really, I mean that you know Twitter and Facebook didn't come along for a for a couple of years still. But at that yes, time, yes. But, uh, but I
1: will I will yeah. sort of qu- qualify that and say the comments section. counted as social media in that time that's right there was a lot of activity in the comment section and so you would go to the comment section to sort of try and make your mark and and so i often would go back and forth with people and he did debates in a comment section just as much to just be able to say like wow here i am in this comment section and which now has been transplanted transplanted to twitter and 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 my facebook wall when we're talking about you know whether serena should have been more polite etc anyhow
0: <laughs> but you know i never thought about it that way and you're right it really was the comment section was the precursor to social media and and i remember gawker in particular around 2007 i think i've got the the timing right or 2008 right before twitter was founded You'd find some of the best writing and some of the funniest writing and satire in the comment section of Gawker.
1: Oh, yeah. They recruited heavily from there, particularly at Jezebel.
0: And at what point, Rachel, in that time period did you feel as if you really had found your voice and hit your stride as a writer? What moment? Was there a moment? Was there a story? Uh,
1: Really? Honestly, I I look back at my writing from that time and I'm aghast at how confident it seemed (laughs) when I clearly remember that I knew so little. I think there is something really beneficial to coming into something and not knowing what you don't know. So I wasn't cowed like I I now think I ought to have been on a number of fronts. But I I, I just I look back at my old stuff and I, I just. I think I was amazingly confident. Uh, So I just, it was a really, the form was very natural to me. Sort of, I I liked the quick takes. I liked making goofy jokes. I liked, you know, making consistent show tune references that, you know, and smoking out all the secret musical theater fans. Like it just, it was all fun. It was really, really, really fun. Um, I look at that as a crazy, exhausting, bleary, deliriously wonderful time. I it was very lucky. Very lucky. Well you hit
0: on something that's really important for young writers. And we have a lot of young writers who listen to this podcast, and that is confidence. And having confidence despite not knowing what you're doing and you know i've talked about this before on this podcast not good
1: for presidents but anyhow no
0: it's not good for presidents it's not good at that level but when you're first starting out as a writer and you are not confident and you there's a lot you don't know but still being able to project that confidence as a writer um, it's sort of like reporting in fear that there's so much out there that you don't know but then when you finally have to sit down and write something and a lot of times this isn't a matter of hours when you were blogging do it with confidence do it with even a little bit of attitude with pop cultural references like you you used to do all of that is so important and you pulled it off because i had no idea how little you knew at the time as i was reading but
1: can i also remind you that i said that i was treating this like a full-time job so i was working so hard behind the scenes i was that duck paddling furiously I was, I mean, I was really just, just, re- I mean, I was working really hard to, like, the reason I w- was, anything got into print was because I, I ended up knowing it, but the only reason I knew it was because I just spent an hour and a half trying to figure it out. Um, and that, and I think that's also where my, my lawyerly caution was helpful, because I've, I've never been one of those, I've gotta be first people, I've always been, been one of those, I've gotta be right people, and it, it kills me to, yeah, I mean, it happened a lot to be wrong, obviously, but it was, it, you know, I'd, I, would, I would work very hard to make sure I I was not putting something into print that was wildly off base. But yeah, but I, I just think that the, the confidence just came in, well, first of all, Elizabeth Byers was amazing. She basically, she let me do a blog post on her personal blog just to figure out how to link and you know and use the use the the software and then was like okay go and she i should have mentioned her before about what an education i got from her we would go out for drinks or dinner and i would just listen to her talk she was so and still is so smart i mean she's doing some of the best commentary on the just the Dumpster fire of what's <laughs> happening today, um, and and I'm so grateful that she worked with Jared Kushner just so she can speak so authoritatively about what a nincompoop he is. Anyhow, that's a kind word I'm using.
0: Yes, it is. I wanted to ask you talk about dumpster fire now. I definitely wanted to get your take on the media landscape today compared to 2005 when you just started out? What what are the differences? What are some of the similarities, if any? How would you compare the two? Just
1: everything feels so different. Although many things still are the same in the sense that I still, you know, like, like TV still matters. Um, I, I think there are many ways in which online has trumped TV and certainly everything is more fragmented, but there's no denying that you know, that uh, like uh, TV moments, uh, particularly live TV moments, uh, are, still matter, still go viral. And the resources, I mean, I just, I think that one thing that I find myself grateful for, which is ironic, is, is the resources that, that old school media organizations are now deploying um, investigatively, and and uh, I mean, obviously, look at uh, the Harvey Weinstein. It took a teams of amazing reporters to bring the monstrosity of everything he did to light. And um, and then Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose. I mean, Arin first got her first tips about Charlie Rose. I think she said like eight years ago, um, and just which them. which is remarkable. I mean, just remarkable. You know, m- yes Mark yes. Halperin yeah I But these by the way these are all I I, I mean I definitely had like heard things experienced things there's the, you know the, you know we had there was a, the women had the uh the am I allowed to swear yeah of course or, am I allowed to swear on here <laughs> yes okay shitty right. media analyst <laughs> just making sure I don't want to offend um like, there were, it's, suffice to say, there were not names on that list that, that surprised numerous women. Uh, there were many text chains that I was on, and even that, I, I was, you know, I was very aware of the sort of generational gap. I didn't even know a lot of these names, and, um, and, and I will say, I miss Gawker. I do. Yeah. I miss Gawker. I, I did not enjoy when they mocked me. But it, they really did they didn't do it that much and, and I it, to, on balance I Gawker probably did more to sort of put me on on the map uh, or whatever some sort of map as it were than, than they ever were too mean to me. But uh, more importantly, on a public interest level, like the work that public that Gawker did in the public interest would really come in handy right now. Um, I mean, there's obviously way more differences in the media world right now. I one thing I'll say about for 2018 is people are focused on diversity a lot more than they were in 2005. Uh, the, you know, at the very least, it's pointed out and noted when uh, you know there are stretches of all white men everywhere. I mean, it hasn't quite filtered up into executive suites in uh, the various uh, media organizations. Case in point, look at the CBS board that. Uh, Eventually was arm twisted into getting rid of less Moonvas. but um, You know so 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 we can have, at the very least give props to 2008 for that. I mean, I guess I don't not give props, but just be glad that you know for incremental change, but you know what? 2019 <laughs> we can definitely do better.
0: Well, you know, it's a perfect segue Rachel to go back in time to the spring of 2010, New York Magazine had run a cover story about the social media startups that were making their home in Silicon Alley in Manhattan. And I think there were 53 people pictured in the layout and only six were women. And in one photo, a man's foot actually blocked a woman's face and
1: i love how deep you went yes, with your research be, well, well because awesome. you
0: went crazy you went ballistic and shot off an email to a couple dozen of your girlfriends and said what we have to do something about this and i believe that is how the list got going right am i am i right about that that
1: is that's exactly what happened Look at you! Uh, New York Magazine, their cover story on the startups in New York uh, that featured I, you know, your numbers are basically right. I believe it was 56 men and oh. five women. I think it was six women, but I, call, I it was it was really five because you couldn't see uh, one of the women's faces because it was being blocked by her her founder's foot. So because, 56, 56 I men sent and an 50,
0: 56 men and five women, basically in this layout. Right. Okay. And tell me about the and, email you sent.
1: And so I sent an email to a bunch of women who I knew to be active in the space, in the di- digital space, in the startup space, and I knew to be doing cool stuff, and who I had seen in, in the scene, S E E N and S C E N um, E. You know, I had written a lot of Where Are the Women Next Day stories, and I didn't want to do it anymore. So, um, so that's how Change the Ratio was born. Basically sort of similar to the luckiest it was something I've heard myself saying and I was like hey Let me just type that in the URL bar and see if I can get that We had this email list that became this sort of back channel in the community and kept on growing and growing and we had So many women on it and and people started saying that this should be a business This should be a business and I had actually been talking about doing another startup and I went on a little tour talking to mentors about what I should be doing and I remember I was ta- I, I met with Joanne Wilson uh, who is uh, an investor in many startups and she was like why are you talking about other startup ideas when you've been working on a startup for the past two years like you've just like changed the ratio exists you've been working on it pouring so much into this area for two years like you already have a startup just go make money from it now yeah it, ex- so, it, ex- it uh, exists re-
0: yeah you know right, it, it, it it's there just monetize it, right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah.
1: right. I, and it, but it's hard, it, you know. Especially then, it was it was hard to to monetize activism. And and right. as as you know, pe- there is an expectation that women are supposed to be helping, and and everybody expected that this would be a not for profit. And when I, I reached out to Glennis, who had recently f- finished working at Business Insider, and we had both um, been at Mediaite, I was still sort of like part time at Mediaite, and then I went over to Hashable and sort of never really fully came back to Mediate again. So I reached out to Glynis and I said, let's let's start this. Let's do something fun. And and her idea of, of starting a startup was not necessarily fun, but she was convinced enough that there was something real there. And, uh, and so we did. And then we realized that it should be a for-profit and that we were providing value and that it was important as women who provided value to to claim that and identify it rather than allow it to be taken for granted and there's a there's actually a phrase for it there's a term for it it's called the gender discount where you assume that women just want to help you for free
0: right and how were you able to actually turn it into a business what was the business model of the list
1: Uh, it was a membership model and we had a lot of uh, terrific people helping us Uh, ruth ann harnish who is a philanthropist and investor and who Runs the Harnish Foundation was an early uh, mentor and sp- sponsor, really, and uh, and she she pointed out the sort of the uh, the membership model of early TED, where you c- you know people were sold lifetime memberships, getting in on the ground floor, um, and and she she just helped us really think about it as uh, as something where membership was valuable and a privilege and should be treated as such. Now it's very difficult to turn around and ask people who have been on your email list for a bit and, and suddenly say, oh, I'd like you to pay me, and we sort of struggled through that process, and if I could do it again, I would do it far less ham-handedly, but that well, was how, model. How, how it, did you do it a,
0: ham-handedly? This is, this is very, well, this is re- like very not, relevant to the Sunday laundry, because we're just beginning a membership model as well.
1: I saw, yes. <laughs> actually, and I will subscribe. Okay, good, Rachel. I absolutely will, but it's, it is very difficult to claw something yeah. back that you've been giving right. for free. It's also when you have, when you particularly for networks. When networks are, you know, by nature that like they're extremely valuable, but they're also soft and 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 somewhat undefined or, or amorphous. And there's, it's like a very blurry line between, you know, I'm I want to help you because I want to help you, and the perception that I'm only going to help you if you're paying me. Which is, by the way, it's 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 question again. I mentioned this before, but it's it's that's questioned far less in the guise of. Men selling their expertise um, or selling a service, but because we had already established it, it it just—it just—I and because I'm like I'm such a pleaser and (laughs) just conflict-averse and I don't uh, know—we we we could have done it much like quicker and more definitively. You know, lessons learned. Um, uh, It—we did eventually roll it into a model we're really happy with. Uh, it's a membership model. We have great people. Uh, it's invitation only. We have referrals. We make a, a huge effort to make sure that it's representative. Um, that we have uh, people from well, women, women from um, you know a n- number of industries and demographics, and just a great group.
0: And Rachel, tell our, tell our listeners what the list does for the women.
1: I mean, it's rocket fuel for a lot of the women who are in it. It provides, uh, you know, uh, relationships and referrals and job opportunities and it's, it corrects information asymmetries. I remember uh, early on in my time in the tech world, like I was very much in the swim, I knew lots of people, I knew events that were happening, and I remember seeing on Twitter all of a sudden a bunch of guys I knew who were all tweeting about being at this event. And I, I was like, "I didn't know about this." And it was just a, re- a really crystallized information asymmetries. And a lo- uh, there's a lot of things that you're just not invited to. you just don't know about. It, it has not been raised with you. And, and particularly, you know, in terms of how women and men are socialized, I mean, ta- money discussions, and, and just uh, there's, there was an incredible amount that particularly when I, like in my early years, uh, or early career years, you know, discussions around money and negotiation and salary expectations. Like, there's, there are so, so many resources now online for that, but that did not exist. Um, and, and also, sort of <laughs> germainly to my own life, uh, there was very little uh, transparency around equity, mm-hmm. uh, equity norms for, in terms of if you're a, a, a early at a startup, uh, what's normal for your equity position to be, and and I realized a lot of this, and sort of without getting into too much detail, I unfortunately, you know, ended up not having equity in a startup that I had materially contributed to at the beginning, and and I was, you know, a lawyer. Not only was I a lawyer, but I like. I I did very well in law school and I got the business prize. What it really means is that these were just like gaping areas of information asymmetry and I didn't know what I should be asking for with respect to like practical norms around equity grants and I didn't want to be pushy in asking and it is my own fault for not getting it in writing because I did not want to be pushy and so all of this informed my you know, starting change ratio on the list, because it was like, man, I'm like in my mid-30s, I'm a former lawyer, I'm pretty sophisticated. What is you know, a, like a 20-something-year-old woman who just graduated college like, might not have access to this stuff? So it, there was a real goal in, in correcting information asymmetries for women, and it really, really has done that and continues to do that. Um, and, and for that I am proud. So for if if nothing else, and there is actually a lot else, but I'm I'm quite I'm quite proud of the impact the list has had on its members, on on many of its members. And Glennis and I often sort of marvel to each other about all the stuff we do in the background that no one knows about. Um, it's a little we're a little Olivia Pope ish. And <laughs> and like and I and I, I appreciate that very much. I'm I'm very happy to have that role. It make, I'm grateful to have that role. I think that there's something to being able to say that like you are do- like doing something to correct, you know, co- to, like you are being something that you needed when you were younger.
0: Well, listening to you talk, you you really, Rachel and Glennis as well, you guys were, were pioneers because you were really so far ahead of the curve In creating this sort of community where women were going to help each other and do help each other and still do before the Me Too movement, before the Trump presidency uh, brought a lot of this to the forefront. I would imagine that in the last two years, the membership has just skyrocketed. Right. I mean, it has the Trump presidency and the Me Too movement, I guess, been good for the list.
1: I wouldn't ever call it good for anyone. Um, I would never say that. Uh, I will say that it certainly sort of created awareness of how urgent the need is and, and how ridiculous, you know, the problem is. And it's That's much more eloquently yeah. <laughs> put than the way I said it. <laughs> no, for sure. And it also um <laughs> you know, we talk about patriarchy, smashing the patriarchy, like we talk about white privilege, yeah. we talk about white supremacy. These are mainstream terms that are used in a mainstream way and I and that is a new that is new, that is a new thing from even five years ago. So uh, I think I'm I'm super heartened to see all of the amazing Women in this space, and as I as I've said, especially when someone's like, "Oh, are you like jealous, or do you think someone's you know horning on your beat or whatever?" Like, no, there is so much room because women, people of color, women of color—I mean, just underrepresented groups in general—like are wildly underserved. Or to flip it, like white straight right. cis men are wildly overserved, and. Certainly, we have seen evidence of that in the past few weeks. Anyhow,
0: (laughs) Rachel, what are your main objectives as an activist?
1: I mean, I I, you know smash the patriarchy, like correct injustice, see bad people punished, see you know see stolen children return to their parents, along with you know restitution. I I it's it's been an infuriating and upsetting term presidential term um i you know i
0: right those objectives those objectives grow i'd imagine right every day with the president they administration.
1: really do it's it is it is a tragedy and i was i'm so i'm canadian as as i can't remember if we discussed but i'm canadian and a, f- a friend i remember uh, last year i was catching up with a friend from home and she was asking sort of what what am I doing, what, am I, what takes up my time? And I said, I, like, I, I don't know how to explain this if you're not in the US, but just the news cycle takes up so much time, like responding to news events because they impact yes. you. And I mean, it is, it is insane how much work, time, money, energy people have to put into the political process. The, you know, think about how it was in the Obama presidency, how much time you spent thinking about your government. So much less time. Um, I—it's—it It is just appalling to me and very... And I am Canadian and cannot vote. And I hope that, you know, no one kicks me out on the basis of this podcast because, I don't know, I could be on that media enemies list. <laughs> I tweet about Ivanka.
0: This raises a really good question, though, Rachel. How is, does being Canadian sort of change your perspective or inform your perspective on the United States political landscape?
1: I've been here for 20 years. This is, I've actually, you know, I started at White & Case 20 years ago this fall. Um, so as an adult, as, a, as an engaged, as an adult engaged in politics, I actually only really do have the the Canadian, the American system um, as as my default. I just think that, you know, for, on social services, though, like, it, it still seems so crazy to me what hoops you have to jump through to get health care in this country, how difficult it is, how my... my yeah. Like, just the number of times yes. it's been frustrating and time-consuming to try and, like, f- fix things with, with health insurance or the exchange and just, like, how easy it used to be in Canada. How I You know, if you had to go to the doctor, you just went to the doctor. It's, it is a, a stunning system here. And it, it I mean, oh, I really, it's, it's depressing. I, 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 you know, November is coming is all I can say.
0: We're going to have to end it there, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Greatly appreciate it. We also greatly appreciate you guest curating the Sunday long read newsletter back in April. We're really thrilled. You're a member of our team. You've been listening to the Sunday Long Read podcast. If you like what you just heard, please consider giving us a kind review on our podcast page at Apple iTunes. This podcast is a byproduct of the Sunday Long Read newsletter. Every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, the best journalism of the previous week drops in your inbox. If you haven't yet subscribed, we urge you to do so at www.sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe. We had a lot of issues, technical problems with the podcast today. There was some background noise. We had a lot of drops with Wi-Fi problems. So uh, uh, again, Carrie Barber, our producer, did a fantastic job splicing it all together for your listening pleasure. Thank you, Carrie, as always, for all of your great hard work. This has been the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. We'll be back again soon with another great guest. Thanks for listening.